3CR acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders past and present and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Morning, Ella. Nice to be back in the studio with you. Yeah, it's yourself and Claudia and me this morning. (laughs) Yeah, it's just the two of us. Alice is having a birthday week off. So um, we'll wish her happy birthday for Friday and, yeah, we'll probably see her over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, but, yeah, it's good to be back in the studio. We missed it during lockdown. That's right. And I think, um, yeah, we're now a week away from the the latest restrictions being uh, hopefully uplifted or uh, at least reviewed again. So, um, yeah, we're we're slowly moving towards... um, a better place and uh, a much better place than unfortunately what's happening in New South Wales and also Brisbane's had another outbreak, I believe. Yeah, definitely. I was just telling you before we got on air, my parents are up in Brisbane and they um, had some holiday plans which have been cancelled. Um, mm. And I think, yeah, preparing for a bit more of a lockdown. Um, they're not so well versed in lockdowns up in Brisbane. They've been lucky, but I think they'll, yeah, have to get used to it for the next week. <laughs> yeah, you'll be able to talk the same language soon. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Relating lockdown stories. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit sad, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> but, um, great that we can enjoy um, a relatively safe period in, in Melbourne and everyone's continuing to doing the right thing, wearing their masks. And, yeah, we're reaping the benefits of that community attitude. Yeah, definitely. Yep, I haven't seen this morning's numbers, but it's been looking good recently. They all seem to be, yeah, cases that have been isolation. So. And what have you got for us this morning, Yeah, so this morning, uh, just before 8, around 10 to 8, I'm going to be speaking with Amanda Cadamore, who's the CEO of Australian Digital Health Agency. Um, So we're speaking about a few things related to digital health, Um, so the services available, which have obviously, yeah, been very in need in the last year, Um, such as, yeah, electronic prescriptions and telehealth, um, but also how, yeah, we're using technology to uh, advance medicine and get better access to information. Um, so, uh, yeah, from the service providers end and for us clients. Mm. Well, highly relevant at the moment, as you say, with telehealth being uh, so successful. Yeah, yeah. Been a real boom the last year. Mm. Mm. Well, I've got a couple of things uh, lined up for this morning. So first up, I'll be talking with conservationist Paul Gamblin from Protect Ningaloo. Uh, That's a grassroots action group based in Western Australia that raises awareness about industrial threats to the Ningaloo Reef on the northwest coast of WA. And at the moment, uh, the latest effort is targeted to stopping a 2.5 tonne structure, uh, which is the remains of a a Woodside Petroleum project infrastructure being dumped in on the reef and the potential damage from toxic uh, waste that will come with that so uh, yeah we'll be hearing from Paul about um, what they've been doing to uh, raise awareness there 
And then this week is Homelessness Week. So this morning we'll be talking to Angela Carr from Geelong Housing Action Group. That's a recently established collect collective, so a very new group, and they're holding a rally this Saturday to address the Geelong housing crisis during Homelessness Week. And we'll also be um, hearing from her just how the group got started. It um, sounds like it was quite a personal initiative, so should be of interest to our listeners who are uh, involved in grassroots action and uh, campaigning um, in their own uh, areas. And then at 10 past 8, we'll be continuing the discussion on homelessness in the Geelong area and the strategies um, that are being applied to, to raise awareness. But we'll be talking uh, from a different angle. We'll be talking to Colleen Cartwright. She's the project manager of the Geelong Project, a preventative model which strives to reduce homelessness in Geelong's youth through early identification and support of issues uh, so that uh, you don't get to the crisis sort of end of the, the, the scale. So there'll be um, two uh, really interesting discussions on housing and preventative um, action to, to reduce homelessness. Excellent. Yeah, also a really relevant topic at the moment. Yeah, and particularly interesting, uh, the, the Geelong Project uh, is focusing on youth, which, you know, is obviously a, a section of society that's been affected, you know, quite significantly with school lockdowns and increased pressure on all aspects of, you know, social life. Uh, so, yeah, it'd be interesting to, to hear from her how, you know, the pandemic's been affecting their work and, um, yeah, how they've been applying their resources there. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, should we get started with the song? Yeah, that'd be great. Let's start off with uh, The Cruel Sea.
Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. From the car 
cool miles, sail it on the blue Ocean got me feeling, ooh, so smooth Sail to the west, wind good in the sands Eyes map the lines, dreaming through my hands Breathe the moon from the stars, navigate your way Salt in my wounds, heal with the waves Rock the waves, lady As we move into the day is done Navigate from the womb Feel your way through The darkness and the light of woman in you Rebirth the child, the earth, sun and moon To honor the dream time Our sisters and true Rock the waves, lady Move the haze, baby Stir the ocean, lady That was Lady Lash with Yadu. Next up, we'll be hearing from longtime conservationist and campaigner Paul Gamblin. He's the director of the Grassroots Environmental Protection Group, Protect Ningaloo. Now, for listeners who might be unfamiliar, Ningaloo Reef is a, uh, a very special uh, marine sanctuary. It's home to whale sharks, sea turtles and sensitive corals. It's Australia's second largest reef and is 1,200 kilometres north of Perth, sort of halfway to Broome, so to speak. It has a World Heritage listing, but it's under threat from climate change, pollution and industrial development. Most recently, outrage has surfaced in relation to Woodside Petroleum's plan to dump a two and a half tonne structure containing toxic waste next to the protected marine area. I spoke to Paul about the threat this poses and the work Protect Ningaloo is doing to raise awareness. But before I dived in, I wanted to get a picture of the special place Ningaloo is. Well, Ningaloo Reef 
and Exmouth Gulf are uh, some of the most extraordinary marine and coastal environments on the planet. They host uh, a long list of threatened species, whales and, and dolphins and dugongs and sawfish and, and many others. Um, they are in, in good condition. Uh, unfortunately, coral reefs and, and related environments, as we know, are under significant pressure from climate change and, and overdevelopment and, and overfishing and pollution. Uh, fortunately, the Ningaloo system is, is still in relatively good condition, although the pressure is increasing. One of the things that makes it really distinctive is that you can actually walk from the beach into the lagoons at Ningaloo and swim out to the corals because it's a fringing reef. It's one of the world's longest fringing reefs, nearly 300 kilometres long. And it's also connected to Exmouth Gulf, which is, which is a, a fantastically diverse, abundant ecosystem with mangroves and seagrasses. Uh, it's where humpback whale uh, mothers nurse their calves on the southward migration before they head down to Antarctica. Um, it's, it hosts a whole range of other species, dugongs and, and, and many others. So the whole system is bursting with life uh, at a time in the world where, where we know species populations are under pressure. So it's for those reasons and many others that it's so important that we protect it and do everything we can to reduce pressures on it. Thanks for uh, sharing that. So for the benefit of listeners uh, who might not be aware of Woodside Petroleum's activities in the area. Can you give us a little bit of history about uh, what the company does and why they now have this structure that they want to dispose of in the reef? So Woodside's activities are symptomatic of increasing industrial pressure on Exmouth Gulf and Ningaloo. Uh, Woodside's been operating uh, to the north of, of Ningaloo for many decades, uh, drilling and producing oil and gas. Uh, this particular proposal um, that they uh, have is to dispose of a mooring that was used for a, an oil field uh, just to the north of Ningaloo, and they, and they want to dispose, it, um, dispose of it just uh, adjacent to the Ningaloo World Heritage Area. Um, but it's also important, I think, to appreciate that it is one of a number of uh, industrial encroachments as, as we see them. Uh, there's a deep water port called Gascoigne Gateway that's being proposed for Exmouth Gulf, which is known as Ningaloo's Nursery, and another a major industrial uh, pro uh, project called K plus S uh, Salt uh, on the other side of Exmouth Gulf. So, and, and just last year, we campaigned with the support of people right across the country and the world to stop a major oil and gas development called Subsea 7 and Exmouth Gulf as well. So we feel like there's a pressure is building from industrial proponents um, across the board in the area and we're trying to make the case for common sense to prevail. And in the case of this mooring that Woodside wants to dispose of, that's actually being disposed of because they have ceased operations in this case, is that correct? They've ceased operations with that particular um, project. It was an, an oil project. Uh, so so that this, this uh, infrastructure uh, has now come to the end of its life. Unfortunately, it appears that Woodside didn't maintain it um, adequately. And so the plan that they originally committed to, which was to remove this very large uh, piece of equipment from the ocean uh, and to remove um, polyurethane and, and other materials from it before disposal, they're now saying they can't do or they certainly can't do it in the way that they 
thought they would be able to, and there's some design issues around that as well. Um, unfortunately, for, we, we don't think that's acceptable. Uh, we think companies that that benefit from resource use, uh, at very least, need to clean up after themselves and remove this kind of infrastructure from the environment, and that's what we're calling for. Yeah, it seems like a fairly basic principle that you know we teach our kids as they're growing up that you make the mess, you clean it up. So uh, it would seem logical, but obviously uh, causing a lot of grief for the community and environmental uh, groups like yourselves. Just before I ask you more specifically about what those risks and concerns are, can you give listeners an idea of what size this mooring is? Because we're not talking about a small uh, structure. We're talking about something that's quite enormous. Yeah, it's, it's about 80 metres uh, in, in length, um, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a very large uh, piece of equipment uh, that was, was designed uh, for a very large floating offshore platform to connect to, um, to and, and for the oil to, to um, so, so that it could, it could provide the services that Woodside needed it to. So it's, it's, it's very, very big. Um, and it's the, the concerns are that it, it contains um, materials like polyurethane that, um, that, was, that was used to create the flotation to, to keep this, uh, this uh, piece of infrastructure vertical in the water column. Um, and we're concerned that over time um, that polyurethane could, could leak out um, into the marine environment. Um, so that's, that's a concern as well. But these, these pieces of infrastructure are composed of all sorts of metals as well. And, and over time, some of those will break down. This, this will actually break down over time. And, uh, and leach uh, into the marine environment as well. So we're, I mean, we're concerned about this particular uh, project. We con we're concerned about the fact that um, a piece of equipment can be um, uh, poorly maintained. Uh, and, then, and then we find ourselves in a position now where, where an oil and gas company is saying, well, now we, we can't treat it in the way it was supposed to be treated. And so uh, we, want, we want to dispose of it on the sea floor. We're also concerned about this because of the precedent um, that it could set. There are lots and lots of oil and gas projects now that will face decommissioning over time. And what we don't want to see is oil and gas companies shirking their responsibilities to deal with this infrastructure once it's come to the end of its life. And so that's, that's one of the reasons that we and ACF and other organisations are raising concerns about this particular instance, but, but generally as well, as we see more and more of these decommissioned projects potentially looking for uh, loopholes to allow their equipment to, to be left um, on the seafloor. Uh, we, we just don't think it's, it's appropriate and, uh, and that's why we're raising concerns about it. I would also say though that it's, it's really important for uh, industrial players to, to really rethink how they treat Australia's marine and coastal environment. It is, it's not the 1980s anymore. This is a, a new era. Expectations from the community are much higher for how corporations conduct themselves in these environments. They need to avoid sensitive environments. They need to engage with the community. They need to look at environmental, sen environmentally sensitive areas and culturally sensitive areas and steer clear of them. Yeah, it's a, it's a different industry and a different area of sensitivity, but I can't help but think back to last year with Rio Tinto's activities in the Jukun Caves, where those very special archaeologically and culturally significant items were absolutely destroyed. And, you know, then there was this 
uh, outrage afterwards and it could have actually been avoided. This sort of strikes me as the same sort of thing in a very broad sense where we have, as you said, a changing community expectations and disregard by a large corporate organisation for those standards. Do you see sort of parallels there? I think it's. I think there's something that is certainly changing, um, uh, and, and Drip and Gorge caused enormous shock across Australia and internationally as well. And, and the shock waves are still being felt, uh, if I could put it that way. Um, and it's that plus a number of these other proposals, I think, are causing many people to scratch their heads and, and wonder how things have got so out of kilter. Uh, we, we really, this this is a, a moment of reckoning um, for how. Um, corporations uh, conduct themselves and 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 treat uh, the natural and cultural environment in Australia and globally, of course, as well. The the clear scientific evidence uh, that the UN and others have provided shows that uh, values that we hold dear are in steep decline. Natural values, uh, species populations are in steep decline. That's been documented over and over again in the last few years. So that's part of the reason I think that there is this recognition that we need to, that, that we haven't got, that things are out of, out of whack, that we need to recalibrate quite significantly. And that's why the expectation now is not only for uh, corporations to commit to cleaning up after themselves at very least, but actually for new project proponents to look very closely at the environmental and cultural values of the areas that they may want to uh, develop in, um, and to engage with the community well before they've made the decision and before these projects have become a fait accompli and to read the room, you know, to really understand that if they if they are serious about their social license to operate, if, that, if that's not just PR, it's not just spin, if it's real, they need to engage early and they need to understand uh, what would be acceptable and what might not be acceptable. And uh, we, we, we're still not seeing that. The penny hasn't dropped yet. And that's why campaigns like ours exist. They shouldn't have to exist because we are having to make the case for areas that are patently incredibly valuable, also valuable economically as well for compatible economic activity, for tourism, for research, for natural resource management, for a whole range of activities that don't threaten the underlying natural values to persist. Um, and that's why this, our campaign is, is one of many, but it, it was getting a sense that, it, that it's a bit of a touchstone issue. And what role is there for government to step up in this case? Well, in this case, and I would broaden the case to include some of those other industrial proposals, the Deepwater Port and Salt Production Facility proposals for Exmouth Gulf. Government really needs to step in and fill the vacuum, the policy vacuum, the policy void that, that exists to a large extent to identify areas that need to be protected for their environmental, cultural, uh, economic values. Uh, also understanding how many of these areas are in peril from climate change and other factors and to not allow development that will compromise those values that are um, that can't adapt to scientific advice in the future. And that's why heavy industrial development is such a concern because it doesn't lend itself to being adapted or managed in the future. It's inflexible. If you build a shipping, if you build a, a large port or a shipping lane, et cetera, you're stuck with that for perhaps a century. Uh, you can't adapt it. So we need to be able to be in a position and governments need to, to take good scientific advice to adapt to community, to changing community values and to manage activities that can be modified over time, to lock in to, to proponents, uh, to proposals 
that don't lend themselves uh, to that. So governments have a very important role to play. They are still playing catch up in, in many um, considerations, I think, around these kinds of proposals. Uh, but there's a real opportunity and also uh, a growing expectation by the community for governments to step up to get ahead of the game and to identify areas that are too sensitive or too important, too economically valuable in many respects to allow industrial development. And that's, that's just not happening, certainly in Western Australia sufficiently and in other parts of the country as well. It's quite sad because um, when we don't have these beautiful natural resources and ecosystems, generations will look back and think what could have been done differently. But this is this is the time for those different courses of action to be taken. That's right. And and, I, and on the other side of so that so that the challenges are significant. But what we're also seeing is a is a very strong response from the community, from the broad community right across the board in Western Australia, um, but also across Australia and internationally as well. Just for Ningaloo and Exmouth Gulf, for example. So. We've, we've uh, on the 10th anniversary of Ningaloo World Heritage Listing, which, which came about largely from the community stepping up about 20 years ago to say we need this area protected. What, what the UN said then was that Exmouth Gulf uh, should also be uh, included. The Australian government should consider including that in the listing. And so we've, put the, we've, we've started the conversation with the community around what should happen next. And we've had an overwhelming response. Um, people can look on our, on our social media at Protect Ningaloo. They'll see a beautiful video created by one of the best cinematographers um, in the Ningaloo area, which has now been viewed by tens of thousands, many tens of thousands of people already, which puts the case for protection of this wider area. So there's something going on. People are responding. People are, are getting behind our our campaign and others like it, uh, which is really encouraging. So that the challenges are significant, but we're also seeing a very strong reaction right across the community. So that gives us hope and we are making progress. And so community and listeners want to get involved and show their support. What are the best ways for them to do that? I think to, to, to look us up and to follow us on social media, we're very active on social media at Protect Ningaloo. And to go to our website, protectningaloo.org.au, protectningaloo.org.au, just just read about what's going on, and uh, and and follow us uh, wherever you can, and spread the word. That's the most important thing that people can do really across the country is to is to share the word, uh, to talk about what they expect for for this area uh, if they feel so inclined to get in touch with their local member of parliament, and to make their views known there. Um, Federal, federal members of parliament um, as well, so that people, they know that people right across the country care about places like Mingaloo and want them protected. That would be a very, very helpful thing. And that was Paul Gamblin from Protect Ningaloo talking about the importance of protecting the Ningaloo Reef from harmful industrial development. And you can follow Protect Ningaloo on social media at Protect Ningaloo, that's N-I-N-G-A-L-O-O, and also on their website, uh, protectningaloo.org.au and if you're interested in watching the short documentary Paul referred to you can head to the Save Ningaloo forward slash videos Facebook page and the ACF the Australian Conservation Foundation has also been partnering with uh, Protect Ningaloo in this uh, particular issue and they're encouraging supporters to email the Minister for the Environment Susan Lee directly and you can hop on to their website, www.acf.org.au forward slash Ningaloo reef. And they've got a, a, an email template set up so you can uh, utilise that to, um, to contact the minister and uh, call for the rejection of Woodside's application. 
You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM on the dial, and we're going to go to a song now. This is Camino del Sol from Antenna. You're listening to 3CR, and we just heard Antenna with Camina del Sol. 
And now we're going to turn to National Homelessness Week, a time when homelessness awareness campaigns peak and action groups make the loudest demands for change. In the high growth area of Geelong, a small group grassroots organisation, the Geelong Housing Action Group, is contributing to the call to end homelessness, organising a speak out and rally this Saturday in the centre of Geelong. We have one of the rally organisers, Angela Carr, on the line to tell us about this event and her experience setting up the organisation. Good morning, Angela. Good morning and good morning to your listeners. Thanks very much. Thanks for coming on the show. So first up, can you tell us about the rally and what you're hoping to achieve? Yeah, of course. So this Saturday on the 7th of August, we're going to be holding a public demonstration at one o'clock in Little Mallet Street Mall, which is central in Geelong. Um, we're going to have a few of our organisers with lived experience speaking, but we also want to give people in the broader community an opportunity to have their voices heard. So if anyone else wants to get up on the megaphone, that will be more than encouraged. We'll be uh, asking you at the end to provide details of how our listeners can um, do that so that you can get the message out to people who do want to speak and participate. First of all, can you tell us about the situation in Geelong in terms of housing supply and um, the, the issues that are being experienced? Of course. So. I think in Geelong we've seen the rates of people um, presenting to homeless services rising exponentially over the last few years. So in Geelong we have a rate of people sleeping rough at around 15% um, and these stats are gathered from the last census so it will be interesting to see what comes out of the census um, coming up next week. But that's double the national average and we know in our region that women um, are the experience homelessness um, around 65% of the homeless population are actually women and one of the key drivers of that is actually family violence so in Geelong we have a unique issue now and probably other regional and holiday areas would also experience this but we have down in the outlying coastal towns Things like Airbnbs, they're taking um, long-term housing off the market as well, which makes it really difficult for people. And over the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of migration from Melbourne. So the house prices in Geelong have risen um, at really high rates. So, you know, it's really difficult. I think there's no affordable housing for people on JobSeeker in Geelong and very few affordable rental properties for people on parenting payments or disability payments. Yeah, and I read some recent statistics um, about people in work and it showed that people working in essential services at the tier one and tier two levels, such as dis disability support, aged care, childcare and supermarket roles, uh, who live in the Geelong-Bellarine region have to spend almost half their wages on rent if they want to afford an apartment in the area. Um, yeah. That must push a lot of essential workers out of their communities and add enormous stress to the lowest income earners. Is that also something that you're observing? That's definitely the experience of people that we have seen. And really, it's over the last couple of years, it's the first time that homelessness has been affecting those low-income working families so there's more and more presentations of working people to our homeless entry points 
and that is a new that is a shift um, and the private rental market is so competitive that successful tenants are offered higher offering those higher rents um, and on the spot payments to secure rentals but you know for people on lower incomes they just cannot simply afford to do that so what are your key messages at the rally well, some of our key messages are um, we are concerned about the privatisation of the housing sector. So privatisation has been happening by stealth um, in Victoria and we know that the Andrews government did announce the big build last year and they're putting their building 12,000 properties, but 9,000 of those, they're going over to the community housing providers. Um, and we know that public housing offers low-cost and secure tenancies to some of the most vulnerable in our community. And community housing it can be for-profit. They have higher eviction rates. So we want to stop the privatisation of the housing sector. We know that any service that is privatised is a disaster and you only have to look to COVID and the aged care and what happened in that system. Um, we also want the government to invest in a big building program now, not 12,000 properties. We have 50,000 applicants on the Victorian Housing Register. So we need 50,000 properties now because there's over 100,000 people waiting for public housing. And that's just the tip of the iceberg because many of those low-income families that need affordable housing, they're not even registered on the VHR. We're also calling for um, a radical approach to the housing and homelessness system. We want the government to adopt a housing first model like they have in Finland. So that calls for a large scale investment into public housing. And it is a radical transformation of the way homeless services are delivered. So people would present to the entry point um, and be given a long term permanent house and it's no-fault housing. They don't have to go through crisis accommodation and keep moving through the system. We also believe that no woman or child leaves family violence into homelessness. Um, and until a Housing First model can be adopted, we need a large investment into this area, especially in Geelong. And we know that homelessness is a political choice. So in COVID, we saw money was found to put people into emergency accommodation um, that were experiencing homelessness. But we're now back at a point where women and children are turned away every day to sleep in cars, to sleep on couches, you know, out on the street. So women often have no other option but to return to violence. We also want to see income support payments increase, so your listeners would be acutely aware of the absolute struggle of people trying to survive on job seeker and youth allowance. Um, and it's just not possible to survive on these poverty payments. So the government has also made an acknowledgement that people can't um, survive on these payments when they double job seeker, um, when people lost their jobs for COVID. Um, and, you know, we just think it's a disgrace that in a wealthy country like ours, people have to, are subjected to living in this cycle of poverty. And probably our other last key ask is more aimed at the federal government around the abolishment of those tax 
concessions that benefit the rich, so negative gearing, um, capital gains tax. And we know that these are the things that have pushed um, housing into that level that is just so unaffordable for working people. And I have to say it was really disappointing last week to hear that the Labor federal government um, announced that they would not be pushing for these things when they're campaigning for the next election. So they're just some of the things that we will be talking about and some of the things that we really stand for. Well, that sounds uh, like you've got yourself very sorted for Saturday. Um, and I'm interested to, to know how your uh, organisation began because uh, you, you told me recently that uh, you've only been up and running for a couple of months. Uh, so, yeah, I thought it'd be interesting for listeners to, to learn a little bit about how you got this started and what was the driver for taking action. Yeah, so I guess um, I've known a few people in my circles that we've been talking about this for a long time, but it really was a friend of mine. We're both community service workers that had worked in the homelessness system um, and this person was really passionate about it and we thought, okay, let's go ahead because, you know, what we're seeing here on the ground, you know, it is a, it is a crisis emergency situation. Um, and we've had, we had a really good response um, from the community and now we are, you know, we've got many people from the community involved and, yeah, it's, it's been a really positive experience and we are building quite a strong activist base. And what sort of ways are people helping out with what you're doing? Well, this week we've been actually out and about in Geelong. We've um, been, we've got a demonstration tent that we're moving around. Um, we're taking little actions like that. We are looking towards um, getting, lobbying our politicians and, you know, it's been a really interesting experience doing some educationals amongst ourselves. So, yeah, it's been great. And if listeners want to know more about what your activities are and support, uh, is it best to hop onto your Facebook page? or? Yeah, we've got Facebook or Instagram, so please gonna get on there and you can send us a message um, through those accounts. And is that the Geelong Housing Action Group? Yeah, that's right. And finally, details for the rally on Saturday. Yes, so um, we're going to be in Little Mullet Street Mall just outside 7-Eleven there. People from Geelong will know where that is. Um, and just come along. It will be a COVID-safe event, so please observe mask and distancing rules. Um, and, yeah, if people want to come and get on the megaphone and share their experience, you know, we really encourage and welcome that. Well, thanks very much for joining us this morning. That was Angela Carr from the Geelong Action Group. Speaking about the rally on Saturday, the 7th of August, you can find out more about visiting the group's Facebook page, as we've uh, mentioned, and we'll be putting details of that on 3CR's website. And now we're going to go to a song.
Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR and we just heard the jellies with Jive Baby on a Saturday night. And I just wanted to come back to listeners following the story that we did about homelessness in Geelong, uh, just to give out some of the the help numbers uh, for anyone experiencing homelessness or at risk of homelessness. Uh, The government's 24-hour crisis line is 1800 825 955. And if you're escaping family violence, the number to call is 1800 015 188. You can also call Lifeline in any crisis, 13 And of course, if you're in immediate danger, triple zero. And just a reminder that at 10 past eight, we'll be talking to the project manager of the Geelong Project, and that's a successful model for uh, preventing homelessness among uh, Geelong's youth. So if you're interested in listening in, uh, that'll be coming up at 10 past eight. Now it's back to Ella. Yeah, and next up we're going to hear from Amanda Catamol, who's the CEO of Australian Digital Health Agency. Uh, so digital health has undergone somewhat of a boom in the last year with the pandemic. Um, so I wanted to find out more from Amanda. Um, Now, prior to reading up for this article, I'd always thought of digital health as telehealth and electronic prescriptions. Um, But as I was reading, I realised that while this is part of digital health, um, it means a lot more than just digitising the existing healthcare system. Uh, So I started off with a very basic question for Amanda, just asking for her definition of digital health. From our perspective, it's really all of the innovations and technologies and changes that um, we and others, you know, right across industry and governments um, and innovators are all doing together to bring uh, the best, latest, most connected, supportive um, enablers that we can into the health system to continue to ensure that Australia's health system remains one of the best in the world. And in particular, to make sure that Australians have the kind of information that they should have Uh, their own health information at their fingertips for them to be able to really be in charge of that information and to be able to have the right conversations with their health practitioners who we also want to support to have the best available to keep providing the best health care. And I think we've all become acutely aware of how important digital health is for everyone, um, especially after last year. Uh, But it's particularly beneficial to some groups in society. So who are the kinds of people who can really benefit from digital health? Uh, Yeah, I I think that's right, Ella. I think it is, um, you know, all Australians, I think, are really seeing um, the the things that can really support them, such as, as you say, telehealth's been really significant through last year, a great way of assisting Australians, um, you know, to have healthcare come right to them as they needed it. Um, Electronic prescriptions, which saw an enormous growth last year, which enables people to get, you know, an electronic script as an alternative to a paper one, also really meant that those who um, aren't able to, um, you know, access uh, going into a a healthcare provider were able to get their script on their phone and and then take it to their pharmacy. And in some cases, 
to have uh, their medicines delivered to their door. So for people who are remote or having difficulty with mobility or who simply weren't able to get out during some of those uh, lockdown periods last year and this year, those sorts of innovations have just really meant that, that we can continue to provide people with the best possible health care. Um, and for people in remote areas of Australia, for example, we've seen uh, that really um, lifted ability for people to connect with their healthcare providers and then get the kind of medications that they need all by being able to use uh, technologies, not have to do enormous round trips, for example, to major towns, to go to different specialists or to, to link up. And when they go into different um, parts of the healthcare system, to have that information go with them so that it's right there in front of them. They don't have to repeat their stories all the time. And they've got the absolute most um, cohesive and up-to-date information right with them um, and that moves with them as they go through different parts of the health system. Uh, the other group that um, it's really providing support to, and we want to do more of this in the coming um, couple of years, is um, our older Australians, not only those in residential aged care, for whom having that information, if they have to go to hospital for a particular visit, or they've got different GPs or others coming to visit them in residential aged care, that's really important that they've got all of that information ready for and their carers have it available to them. But also for people who are in home-based care. And over time, of course, we want to see more and more people being able to stay in their homes for longer and Australians are telling us that's what they want. And so being able to support them in the home with those tools and all that information right in front of them uh, on smartphones or with their carers on an iPad or other, other devices uh, on, the, on their laptops, whatever they need, will enable them to have much more of that as they make those choices to be able to stay home longer and to have that wraparound care come to them, both digitally and then, of course, supporting face-to-face um, -face services because in many cases we know that it's really critical for people to connect with their healthcare providers face-to-face. -face. This helps them have options and also a whole lot more support. Yeah, absolutely. And I noticed there as you're speaking about a lot of the people it's going to be most useful for that a lot of these people such as the elderly or people who live in remote communities might also be the people who would find it most challenging to use technology or um, digital health. So how is the Australian Digital Health Agency tackling these challenges around tech literacy or access to technology? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Ella. We can have all the great, you know, innovations uh, in the world, but if we're not supporting people to engage with them well and that digital literacy and that digital health literacy, then uh, none of that's going to make the kind of difference that we really want to help make for people's health. Um, and so one of the ways we as an agency go about that is partnering with a whole range of really um, remarkable education delivery partners who help us to engage with Australians right across the wonderful diverse spectrum to ensure that we can really help people to engage in their own digital health and digital health literacy. Um, we've got partners such as the Good Things Foundation, the Australian Library and Information Association, uh, who, who, for example, bring that uh, support work into libraries so that we are training and mentoring library staff who then, of course, engage with Australians when they come into their libraries on how to set up, access and use things like the My Health Record as a really key part of having their own health information right at their fingertips. Um, we also partner with... Um, some really remarkable groups uh, in Victoria, for example, a fantastic organisation called Diverse Works. 
and they support a large number of culturally and linguistically diverse consumers through the Victoria Multicultural Centre for Women's Health and that enables them to have translated materials in a really broad range of languages and to engage with Australians um, who are in those languages to support them again to really get involved with their digital health and to be able to use the tools that we have available to them. And, and the other one that's absolutely important and a really big um, foundation piece for us is our work with Aboriginal con, um, community controlled health organisations that operate right across Australia and really critically support um, people uh, in remote Australia. And we partner with those organisations to then um, help them to support and embed that literacy and that engagement of people in remote Australia with those not only digital health services, but also with the um, tools that they can then have when they go away from those services and they've got all of that right at their fingertips and if they're moving between different places or going to different health organisations. So um, we're, we've, I must say at the agency, we feel really lucky to have such a diverse range of partners who then reach right out into the community right across Australia to help ensure that people are really engaged in this conversation and that they're getting the use of the tools and then we can help them to, um, to really be at the forefront of their own health information and supporting their own health care. And you spoke a little before touching on the impact of COVID-19 last year, which I imagine has just been massive for the digital health field. How has the Australian Digital Health Agency coped with these changes? You know, like everyone, we've had to make, you know, significant changes. Our pace has accelerated enormously and we are really making sure that we try and continue to, um, you know, to grow and um, build out the kind of digital health infrastructure that we're going to need for the future to make sure we can keep a pace with and keep ahead of the kind of changes that are going to really support Australians' health care and their health engagement sort of in the next 5, 10, 20 and so on years. And for us, we've seen really significant uptake and engagement in the My Health Record. Um, we've seen Australians really reaching in to get involved in their health information through the health record um, at, a, at a really significantly accelerated pace. And in particular, as they go and look for, um, you know, their Australian immunisation history statement that they can see in the record, they can also see their COVID tests um, and have, there's a record of all their tests in there through their pathology providers and, um, and also notifications. So being able to see when a second dose is due, have that ping up on their, on their phone or on their consumer portal and enable them to know when to go when to go next. So we're seeing a really big uptake and we're trying to make sure that every time you go into your My Health record, it, it, there's, a, there's a change in the look and feel, that we're adding more functionality, that we're listening to Australians about what they want to see next. And so we've, we've built out a lot of those changes through um, 2020 and into 2021 in response to the, to the sort of things that Australians need at their fingertips right now, but we want to keep doing that for the future. So that each time you go and have a look there's more there and it's more of what you need right when you need it. Um, and so that's kind of on the front end to really make sure that people have got the information they need. And on the back end, part of our job is to build out the infrastructure so that you, know, you don't necessarily see that, but behind the scenes, uh, we can make sure that it's as safe and secure and enabling as it possibly can be to support Australians health going forward. And for us, that requires us to also continually update and review the, the infrastructure that all of this sits on to make sure that we can um, 
provide the security, the scalability, the flexibility that people are going to need for us to then offer more and more of that um, enhanced digitally enabled healthcare um, for Australians to continue to, for us to have this extraordinary health system that we're also privileged to be part of and proud of. And I imagine one of the biggest challenges of digital health is privacy. The more information, the better in terms of providing someone with the best health care. Um, but how do you also balance out this risk of managing so many people's personal information? That's, that's right. That is absolutely at the forefront of what we do and what we're charged with doing as an agency. Um, and it really goes, is the absolute DNA of who we are as an organisation and the way in which we support uh, the My Health Record system and the other national digital health infrastructure on behalf of Australians. And so on the, uh, behind the scenes, uh, we have a team of people whose job it is, of course, to protect that information um, to the absolute highest standards and to keep it as safe and secure as Australians expect it to be. And on the front end, um, there are settings. The way the My Health Record system is devised is that it provides uh, decision-making in the hands of, of Australians about the way that they want that healthcare shared. And so you can go into your My Health Record and make decisions about who you want, which information you want shared and with whom. Um, and and you, can, you are in control of that, those, those options to ensure that you can find the balance between sharing information that will enable healthcare providers to help you, but also that you can also maintain whatever privacy you would like in relation to your record. And so we try and strike that balance to ensure that consumers have absolutely the control over their information, while we also ensure that where they want it, there's availability and we keep that secure, but we enable it to pass through the system to provide the, everyone with the best healthcare possible. So that's really absolutely writ large and writ deeply in the way in which uh, we're charged with supporting Australians in that system. All right. And a big topic in the news at the moment has been vaccine passports. Um, now, I realise we're obviously not at that stage yet, given the current vaccination rates. Um, but is that something the Australian Digital Health Agency has planned for further down the track? We're working, Ella, right across government um, to, you know, in a whole range of ways to have those conversations. Um, obviously, those things require um, thinking around people, uh, you know, outbound from Australia and people coming into Australia, as well as the information that Australians might need to have to, you know, to be moving around um, in the coming months and so on. So there's quite a number of... Um, government agencies and others that need to come together to have those conversations. Our role really is to ensure that we're providing Australians right now with information that they need at their fingertips while we're in this, in, you know, going through this um, part of the COVID-19 response. So that includes the ability to see your Australian immunisation history statement, the ability to see uh, test results um, from your pathology providers and the ability to get your second dose notifications. Over time, we'll continue those conversations right across government to ensure that, um, you know, uh, as those other big questions around, as you say, the future um, come through, that we're all ready together to provide Australians with the best possible response. So we'll watch this space. And finally, as you said, this is a field that's changing rapidly. There's always new information available. So what's the best way for the public to access this new information and find out what services are available to them? Uh, there's a whole range of ways to do that, Ella. One is to go into the My Health Record and just have a good look at your own record, see where things are up to, see what information you have there and, and some of those choices. 
Um, for some Australians engaging through libraries, for example, we've got, as I said earlier, a really terrific library program for Australians who might want to get in involved with their digital health literacy there. Reaching out to peak organisations, both for healthcare providers and consumer peak organisations, such as the Good Things Foundation and others. Uh, reaching out to your Aboriginal community controlled organisations who are very big partners with us in supporting um, people's engagement with their health records. Our website provides people with a, a great deal of information. We have a steady stream of what we call Digital Bytes videos that enable you just to grab hold of something that might be of, of use to you. Um, and then there's a whole lot of other information both on our website and the, and the Commonwealth Department of Health, as well as, of course, all of those terrific state-based websites that are providing Australians with a lot of that information that we need at our fingertips now. So there's plenty of ways to, to go and reach in. I'd really encourage Australians to keep getting engaged with their um, healthcare information and particularly with their, the digital tools that are available and that we're continuing to make available to support everyone to have the greatest, um, best, most technologically enabled, cutting edge healthcare system that we possibly can. That was Amanda Catamol, CEO of the Australian Digital Health Agency. Words out. Freedom of species has hit the airwaves. Tune in for debates and updates on both local and international animal protection news and events, and learn about how you can live a cruelty-free, sustainable lifestyle. Animales news, views and non-leather shoes. That's Freedom of Species, 1pm Sundays on 3CR. Authorised by the last few remaining kangaroos, Canberra. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. Okay, earlier this morning we heard from the Geelong Housing Action Group in relation to the urgent need for a response to the housing crisis engulfing Geelong. Now we're going to hear about an initiative developed by the Barwon Child Youth Family Service. It's called the Geelong Project and it aims to address homelessness among Geelong's youth using a preventative approach. The model has attracted an international following and has now been adopted in Seattle. Colleen Cartwright is the project manager at the Geelong Project and she's here to tell us more about their work. Good morning, Colleen. Good morning. How are you going? Very well, thank you. And uh, great to have you on Wednesday breakfast Thank you. Can you start off by telling uh, us what is the Geelong Project and what it is trying to achieve? Sure. So uh, 
TGP, as we like to call it, is a local approach to early intervention. So we try to prevent students from becoming homeless or disengaging from school early. Um, and I guess we've found over a long time now, more than um, 10 years, that family breakdown is really the main cause that can leave young people to both leave school early and also kind of fall into that homelessness um, trajectory, which we really desperately try to prevent. Um, yeah, so we've, we've sort of worked with a couple of different local agencies like Headspace and the Local Learning Employment Network and Upstream Australia over, over many years to sort of develop something very local in terms of putting the resources in early. So we're placed based in a school environment to really make a difference before the crisis hits is our main approach. Can you uh, tease that out a little bit to give us uh, a feel for the process and how that actually works in practice? Yeah, for sure. So we um, have a couple of different ways that young people are identified um, that are needing support. We have um, something called the Australian Index of Adolescent Development, which is a um, cohort-based survey that we've been running and trialling with Upstream Australia and the University of South Australia for um, a couple of years. And so that we survey the whole school in seven of the schools that we partner with in Geelong every year. And from that data, between 4 and 8% of young people um, come up as needing support or having some risk factors, and they are things like their risk of homelessness or risk of disengaging in school. And mental health, obviously, is the other really big um, factor which has increased significantly through COVID times. Um, so we work um, really closely with the school. Like they're, they're a key kind of partner. We call it collective impact. Um, so we sit down with them after we've got these survey results and we do a little screening interview with young people that have been identified. And then from, from a conversation with... Um, the school, then we work out what type of support they need. Some of them might only need a tier one support, which is more like a group work approach, or it might be that uh, the school just keeps an extra eye on them and see if things change. And then we have tier two and tier three, which are much more kind of case management type approaches with our um, really highly skilled early intervention youth workers. So they work really intensively with families um, and any other you know, important people in the young person's life. I think we can't um, forget things like footy clubs and, um, you know, arts and other things that are often factors that really help young people get through difficult times. So we try and build in a kind of strong community connection for those, those particular young people that are really at risk. Um, yeah, so we find that that approach really works well and having a having our workers based in the school every week, getting to know the students, getting to know how the school works. We prevent um, the kids that are might be causing a bit of trouble in the school. We really work hard hand in glove with the school to stop them being um, asked to leave early or, you know, having, having difficult outcomes because we've found over years and years that if... It's often, if a young person's having trouble at school, there's significant stuff going on at home or other things that need addressing. And adolescence is a tricky time uh, in terms of life's journey. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on anyway during that period um, before you get to specifics in uh, an individual's family settings and so forth? Because uh, 
you know, in, in, in some respects, that students are already vulnerable because of the changes they're going through. Oh, that's exactly right. And I think things like um, transition, there's a lot of research around, you know, that transition time from grade six to year seven is really significant for young people. And um, and I think COVID has put an extra layer of complexity on that, that the normal um, things that you go through to prepare you for that change out of your little primary school to high school weren't able to happen, I guess, as easily as before. So um, that's one really sort of challenging point um, and then yeah and just that kind of identity stuff is really important as well in adolescents that are trying to figure out who they are trying to I guess get independence from their family and and um, you know I'm sure some of the some of your listeners are parents and are nodding and going to that's a tough, a tough time just helping them find their place in the world really so having a soft landing and some support networks around that is really important and what sort of results have you been seeing with the programs you're running? Uh, look, we've um, a couple of years ago we had an interim report done. We're going to have some other results coming out soon. But at that point in 2018, we had a reduction at our youth entry point, which is the the place that young people who are homeless um, come to for support of um, a 40% reduction for 12 to 18 year olds, which is pretty amazing result and something that we're really proud of um, and I think that you know it'll be really interesting to see what the next lot of data says just given that the last 18 months um, you know we're finding has been pretty challenging for everyone and um, you know there's been some significant mental health problems in in all of our communities and, and in Geelong so we're um, yeah it'll be interesting to see um, how that data goes now but I guess we've been really lucky that we've been recognised internationally so as you mentioned in your intro um, Seattle is picking up the program and also in Wales there's something going on but um, the Aubrey project closer to home and there's another project in Mount Jordan Sydney um, are also agencies that have uh, places that have sort of taken up the model that we're using and making it fit to their local community, um, which is, you know, just exciting to have people not having to reinvent the wheel. I think our sector tries to do that too much. So um, we're pretty proud that um, something that started in little old Geelong has gone, you know, international. And we've also been recognised recently in the um, Victorian, Home, Victorian Parliamentary Homelessness Inquiry, um, where Fiona Patton, who's an amazing MP, has sort of led that inquiry and there was a um, a joint report that has suggested that this type of work needs to be expanded across Victoria. So there's some work going on at the moment. There's seven local government areas that are sort of in different stages but really keen to sort of do something like this um, in their local communities, which is really exciting because I think a lot of the emphasis with homelessness, you know, and obviously this is also important, is focused on that crisis end. You know, it's really dis distressing for people to see um, people see sleeping rough. It's a distressing thing to happen. Um, but I guess we're calling for people not to also forget that we can do prevention and stopping, you know, people getting to that um, that part of the trajectory. I think it's a kind of quite an efficient... Um, use of everything really and, and better better outcomes for the people involved so we're really calling on that component not to be forgotten. Absolutely yeah really important to um, 
tune in in the early uh, stages of, of any problem before it develops to a crisis and then, you know, it's a lot more uh, difficult to deal with and, and everyone's so much more emotionally charged at that point that it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's challenging to, um, to bring, you know, rational thought to the response. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But, you know, that's not having, that's not saying that, you know, there shouldn't be money and resources poured into housing. Obviously, that's the significant need now. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But uh, both approaches seem uh, to be uh, the way to go. Um, (laughs) And you touched on uh, the pandemic and the impacts um, that's had for young people, notably in the area of mental health. I just wondered, um, I know you said you have some data coming out shortly, but do you have a feel for where we're at in terms of seeing the the effects of the pandemic on young young people? Do you feel what is being um, observed at the moment and experienced is the tip of the iceberg and you know, we'll be seeing the the lasting effects um, for many years or do you think that we're seeing it as it's going to be for a while? Look, um, my view is, you know, and and we have an operations group where we constantly are in touch with all the wellbeing staff at schools, they're the people on the ground, our staff on the ground. And, you know, young people are really resilient, but I think the kind of in and out of lockdowns is really taking its toll. And we're finding that, that sense of when young people um, have to then return again when their connection to school is already pretty um, pretty thin, it's it's sort of harder to go to do again and again. So that that group is the one that I'm particularly worried about. The ones that you know were maybe at sort of 50, 60 percent attendance pre lockdown, and then the lockdown happens, and then you know their their mental health deteriorates, and then just returning to school is so much harder that fourth, fifth time. So I think if we put appropriate supports around those groups of young people, um, you know, there's opportunities that they will be able to return. But, you know, I I think we also need to be, um, you know, just as as listeners, um, really thinking about being that community champion and, and having good connections and opportunities for young people in your lives things like family violence and mental health don't discriminate. Um, you know, challenge your thoughts about those young people that are doing it tough and be the person that is the community connector. I think that's how you can really make significant um, contributions. And what's your message to young people? We might have some young listeners who are hopefully going off to school. Um <laughs> What's what's the message to, to young people who are finding things difficult and might be overwhelmed or really worried about how they're feeling at the moment? Look, you're not alone. I think um, most important thing is to try and reach out to somebody who you feel comfortable with and, and that can be a trusted family friend, it can be an auntie. Um, you know, try and hunt out that teacher in the school that you think understands you and make a strong connection with them and ask them for help don't don't sort of sit and dwell on things um get your good strong family and you know other support networks around you um it's um you're not alone in this yeah sometimes it's having that first conversation that's the hardest part and feeling like you have to battle the whole thing by yourself is um, quite demoralizing so yeah sharing sharing the load um is the first step 
I'll be uh, mentioning some of the helplines uh, that young people can get in touch with um, at the end. But thank you so much for your time this morning. That was Colleen Cartwright from the Geelong Project uh, talking about their model for early prevention of homelessness uh, for young people in the Geelong area that's uh, had much success and is now being rolled out uh, internationally as well as in a number of places around Australia. And uh, we'll hopefully speak to you again when you get your new results out, Colleen, so uh, that'd be great. Um, and just a few numbers if anyone in the listening uh, audience uh, wants to seek help. Kids Helpline is the number to call, 1800 55 1800 and Lifeline 13 4 and headspace.org.au has lots of information there. Excellent. And, yeah, I just wanted to give a quick plug for a benefit gig on this Friday in Melbourne. Um, when Gab, our station manager, passed me the flyer, I had to confirm with her, is it a real-life event? Can we actually attend? And it is here in Melbourne. Um, so we, you can see the Tarkina Melbourne Performance Collective at the Northcote Uniting Church. Uh, so this collective are a group of musicians and dancers who are raising money for the Tarkeen, which is 495,000 hectares of wilderness, unique, cool, temperate rainforests, sweeping button grass plains and dramatic coastlines that's currently under threat from mining and logging. Uh, so you can come along this Friday. It's on at 7.30pm. And you can find tickets at eventbrite.com.au slash e slash Tarkeena. That's T-A-K-A-Y-N-A dash Melbourne dash performance. So hope to see you all there. <laughs> Sounds like a good one. <laughs> and I think that's our show for this morning. So big thank you to our guests. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you to Colleen and Angela for speaking to us live and uh, also the, the guests that we spoke to uh, and uh, shared their stories. And we'll see you next week. Have a good one.
3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.